0: Hello leaders, it is the Ray Johnson Leadership Podcast. I'm your host Brad Lominick. So happy to have you along on the journey. It's going to be a fun one here. It's going to be a good episode. NT Wright. Hello. NT Wright. Uh, the arguably the leading voice, if not the leading voice on uh, the New Testament, the New Testament scholar, leading scholar in the world, NT Wright. This is a uh, this is an honor and a privilege to have N.T. Wright sitting down on the Ray Johnson Leadership Podcast for an interview on a number of topics. And let me, let me give you a bit of, of history perspective on N.T. Wright. He's the former Bishop of Durham in the Church of England, he's one of the world's leading Bible scholars. Uh, he served as the chair of New Testament and early Christianity at the School of Divinity at the University of St. Andrews for many, many years. Uh, before that, he taught for several years, New Testament Studies at Cambridge, McGill, and Oxford Universities. Uh, he is uh, one of the world's leading Bible scholars. He's a popular author. He's been featured on ABC News, Dateline, The Kobe Report, Fresh Air. His award-winning books, I mean, all kinds of different books. Simply Jesus, Surprised by Hope, Simply Christian, one of my favorites of his back in uh, the late 2000s, 2008 or nine. And also his book on Paul, the biography of Paul, back a couple of years ago, also one of my favorites. And uh, he writes, he speaks all over the world. And I got to play golf with N.T. Wright. I know, I know. I'm dropping dropping something on your hair, but got to play golf with him in St. Andrews a couple of years ago. And he hits it right down the middle, uh, a couple hundred yards. You know, he just he's a he's a he's a he's a pleasure to play golf with. And obviously I wanted to, to pick his brain and ask questions the whole time and, uh, the, as well did our group. And so we, uh, we probably annoyed him the entire day while he was trying to focus on his golf game. But, uh, it was, it was one of those memory markers for me. So this may be a memory marker for you leaders is just to sit down and listen to this conversation. So buckle your, uh, buckle your seatbelt up, get that moleskin out. I've been, uh, I've been in, in the room with. With N.T. Wright a couple of times, listened to him share, and my moleskin was full, so I'm expecting that from you. Let's jump in on our conversation with the world's leading, one of the leading, if not the leading New Testament scholars, N.T. Wright. Hey, welcome
1: to a very important conversation today. Uh, My guest is a person that you're going to know. One of the foremost authorities on the New Testament today is Professor N.T. Wright. And I'm gonna give him an introduction before I allow him to say anything. Here we go. Professor Wright grew up in the northeast of England, studied classics and theology at Oxford, uh, where he was ordained in 1975 and then taking his doctorate on St. Paul in 1981. He was assistant professor of New Testament at McGill University, Montreal from 1981 to 1986 and then was a fellow tutor and chaplain of Worcester College, Oxford from 86 before becoming Dean of Lichfield, Canon of Westminster and Bishop of Durham. We're going to keep going. In 2010, he became a research professor of New Testament and early Christianity at University of St. Andrews there in Scotland and, and then senior. uh, fellow at uh, Wycliffe uh, Hall, um, University of Oxford, and senior editor at St. Andrews. And he's currently in both those roles today. And listen to this, we're not finished. He has written over 70 books, and I'm sure many of you have them on your Kindle or on your bookshelves. But he's also wrote the impressive Christian Origins and Question of God series, including, and these will live for generations to come. The New Testament, the people of God, Jesus and the victory of God, the unmatchable, the resurrection of the son of God, and most recently, Paul and the faithfulness of God. This man spends a lot of time in his office, everybody. And he is married to Maggie and they have four children and four grandchildren. And he lists among his hobbies, music, poetry, hill walking, and golf. And for me, everybody, golf is like hill walking because I put the ball out so far. It's the same thing. Professor Wright, thank you for joining joining us today.
2: Thank you. Good to be with you. Uh, one slight correction, we now have six grandchildren. Oh. Our, our children have been more prolific in the last year or two than your notes allowed.
1: <laughs> okay, well that's what happens in lockdown. Yes, <laughs> and, yes, yes, yes. yes. And speaking of lockdown, uh, how are you and uh, how have things been in the UK? How is life at the moment?
2: Well, we're gradually relaxing right now. Um, My wife insisted that she drag me out for lunch a few hours ago. I'm speaking to you now at about quarter past five UK time. Um, We hadn't planned it, but she is just desperate because though I have tended to go out and do the shopping, she has one or two slight health conditions, which mean that she has to be more careful about infection and so on. And so now that We are actually allowed to go out to a restaurant. She is just gasping for for the the outside world, for for other people and for um, the life on the street, et cetera, even though we have to wear masks and even though the restaurants are only allowed to serve food uh, outdoors, the place we went to today had had an outdoor bit of the restaurant we ate there. Um, So it's been tough. And I think we don't quite realize how tough it's been until little relaxations like that make you realize, oh, we've been missing this. And and we actually had a vacation planned over Easter, which we weren't able to do because it was we were going to Scotland and we weren't allowed to go. Um, and we, so we postponed that and we're looking forward to doing it in, in a week or two. So it, it has been tough. We've been able to see the bit of the family that live closest to us. They're just up the road and we form what we call a bubble with yeah. them. But that means that any other members of the family, if we want to be with them, we actually have to sort of isolate from the first lot in order to wow. be able to say hello to the second lot and so on. So there's, there's this I mean, and I'm sure everyone listening to this will, will understand, um, this is just a deeply artificial way to be. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that we talk to each other on Zoom or Microsoft <laughs> Teams or whatever, it, that's fine. It works. It enables us to do things like we're doing now, but it's exhausting. I find if I spend a couple of hours on Zoom or Microsoft Teams or something, um, it really does tire me out for the rest of the day. I don't quite know why that is, but so there's all sorts of things going on which have made life just gritty and, and rough. And obviously, it's not been as bad for us as for some, but it's still not been easy. Yeah. So there
1: we are. Yeah. And so in the midst of all of this lockdown, you, you've kept yourself busy and you, you actually wrote a book, God and the Pandemic. And do you want to tell us a little bit about that and maybe even how it's helping us rethink everything that we've been going through?
2: Well, yes. um, I wasn't going to write it. When when the whole thing started up, which is just over a year ago now, I I thought, oh, goodness, this is a horrible thing, but we just put our heads down and get on with what we're doing, and I'm not going to think about it. And then somebody asked me to write an article about the church's reaction to the pandemic, because some people were saying, oh, this is a judgment on Western Christianity for doing this or that or the other. And other people were saying it's a sign of the end times, whatever. So I, I wrote a little piece saying, no, it, that's a wrong use of scripture. We, we, sh- we shouldn't see it like that. I got some real hard feedback. People saying, oh, Tom Wright doesn't read his Bible because the prophet Amos says this is happening to you because of such and such and so on. So I, I hang on. So I did a couple of lectures and the lectures almost accidentally turned into a little book. And, and the book has has been translated into various languages. Even the other day, I see into Ukrainian, amazingly, wow. um, because um, I think uh, people are not used to doing this business of thinking biblically about enormous events, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, etc. And so people either say it's totally irrelevant, or they say, uh, it's a judgment from God. And then usually they say it's a judgment from God on dot, dot, dot. And they fill in the blanks according to the things they were cross about anyway. Um, and that, that's not actually very healthy. Um, and as I read the Psalms and as I read the Gospels, I see all sorts of passages which say, like Psalm 44, all this has happened to us, but we have not been forced to you. We have not turned back from the covenant, etc. And the whole book of Job says you can't make an easy equation between the bad things that happen and, oh, it must be because you've been very naughty or wicked or whatever. Um, And so there's a much richer, deeper biblical way of looking at things, which is as with the whole Old Testament. Yes, there is the strand that says if you do well, God will bless you. And if you do bad, God will um, make bad things happen to you. But there is the other strand which says that there is this righteous servant who suffers in the midst of it, even though it's nothing to do with him, as it were. And those two strands in the Old Testament joggle against each other, and they finally meet with Jesus on the cross. And so I'm advocating kind of a whole Bible hermeneutic, and that we bring all these puzzles and problems and lay them at the foot of the cross. And then as we move out into the life of the early church, we see them wrestling with, um, you know, there's going to be a famine. What are we going to do? Do they say, oh, this must be because we've been terribly wicked? You know, the church in Antioch get news in Acts chapter 11 that there's going to be a, a famine right through the whole region. They don't say, oh, we must repent of our sins. They say, who's going to be in trouble? Uh, what can we do to help? And who shall we send with the money? And, and, and that's that's the practical Christian response, is not to say, oh, we know why this is and we're going to point the finger at somebody, but to say okay, we live in a world which hasn't yet been totally renewed the way it's going to be. And while that is so, we, the followers of Jesus, must do what he did, which is to go to where the pain is and see what we can do to help. So that's basically what the book was about.
1: Can, can I just say that was a phenomenal answer. And I wish I'd have called you a year ago. <laughs> that would have been most yeah. helpful. <laughs> here. And so also in this time, you you know, you've been talking a lot about the God of hope and what a message to bring to people in the midst of tons of despair and, and, you know, uh, people struggling with mental, you know, challenges, emotional deals going on. Do you want to just talk about that, the God of hope and how that just, how God comes into our world at this time?
2: Yes. Yes. I'm actually doing some work on this at the moment for various reasons because in the world of theology there's been a sudden resurgence of interest among conservative theologians in thomas aquinas and in the medievals and so on with particular reference to the way that they or many of them conceived the ultimate christian hope in terms of what became called the beatific vision that is that we will we aspire to see the face of god and that gazing on the face of god is the ultimately glorious thing to do. I've been one or two important and impressive books on that just recently. And I have all sorts of problems with this, Um, not because seeing God is not a biblical aspiration. Blessed are the pure in heart, said Jesus, for they shall see God. Uh, And in the book of Revelation, in the final scene of the New Jerusalem, one of the things that we are promised is to see the face of God. So it's certainly part of it. But my problem with that is that again and again in Scripture, the direction of travel, as it were, astonishingly to us, is not of human beings trying to find their way up to God, but of God coming to be with his people. And in the great scene in the book of Exodus, where Moses uh, wants to see the face of God, says, please show me your glory. And God says, well, actually, uh, I'll hide you here and you can see my back as I go past, but you won't see my face. Nevertheless, there are strange bits about Moses possibly seeing the face or talking to God face to face. But the whole point of that discussion in Exodus 33, is that God promises, yes, I will come and dwell in the midst of my people, hence the building of the tabernacle at the end of the book of Exodus, Mm -hmm. and I will be with you. And then that comes through again with Solomon building the temple, and God says, okay, as I promised to your father David, I'm going to come and dwell in the midst of my people. Now, there are certain conditions to that, dot, dot, dot. And then the gospel message is not... Here's how we get to heaven. It's the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word dwelt is a Greek word which refers back to the tent or the tabernacle. The word became flesh and pitched his tabernacle in our midst and we gazed upon his glory. So my worry is that so many Christians in different traditions have thought that the name of the game is how do we get to heaven, how do we get to see God, when actually the whole gospel message is about God coming to be with us. And so the whole theme of the new temple in the New Testament has become enormously important to me as the sort of centerpiece of the picture of new creation. And so in the book of Revelation, as I mentioned, Revelation 21 and 22, the final great scene in the Bible is not human beings going up to be with God. It's God coming to be with people. So the, the crunch is the dwelling of God is with humans. Mm. Footnote, by the way, some translations say the dwelling of God is with mortals. Mm-hmm. That's silly because mortal means some a creature that's going to die. And in the new Jerusalem, there won't be any death or pain or crying anymore. The dwelling of God is with humans. That's the message. And the idea of the God of hope comes from Romans chapter 15, where Paul says in the blessing at the end of the great theological argument of Romans, Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope mm-hmm. fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the idea of hope comes from their Isaiah 11, verse 10, in him the nations will hope. Mm-hmm. And when Paul quotes Isaiah 11, verse 10, he clearly has the whole of Isaiah 11, 1 to 10 in mind. Paul regularly does this, quote one verse, and actually he's thinking of a passage, and that is the passage about the new creation, the wolf lying down with the lamb and so on, and a little child shall lead them. And here's the the, the crunch for us, that, that, that some people might say, oh well you're just talking about sort of ultimate dreams, what's the reality of this? But what Paul is saying throughout Romans 14 and 15, rooted in the whole exposition of justification which has gone before, is that when the church consisting of Jews and Gentiles and very disparate people, when they get together and worship God together with one heart and voice, which is uh, what he says in verses 7, 8, 9, um, then this is a genuine anticipation of that ultimate new creation. In other words, we are to be new creation people now because we believe in the God of hope. How can that be It can only be by the Holy Spirit enabling us to celebrate the God who comes to us. That's what the Holy Spirit's gift is all about, so that we can be in our communities, tremblingly, no doubt, uh, visible anticipations of the new creation, of the coming together of all things in heaven and on earth. So that's, that's basically... Where this is going, and I know I wrote a book ten or twelve years ago called "Surprised by Hope." Mm-hmm. This is a kind of a sequel, um, and it's in bits and pieces on my desk at the moment. Um, but that—that's where it's going. Not how do we get up to God, but recognizing and celebrating and understanding the fact, as it is, that God has come to us. God comes to us by His Spirit. God will come in glory. And that in the present time, we get to anticipate that in the way we live as church.
1: Fantastic. Let's follow up on that theme of God coming to us and take it to a personal level. Obviously, Professor Wright, 70 books, everything that you're doing between Oxford and St. Andrews across the world. But where did it all start for you? How did God come to you? What was the earliest memories of faith?
2: I'm one of the fortunate people who grew up in a a practicing Christian home. It was very typically Anglican, very understated, and no big flashy sermons, no finger-wagging, you know, it's time you knelt down and said prayer or whatever. It's just understood. We go to church, we say our prayers, we sing hymns, we read the Bible— um, and what happens. And I, I was singing as a choir boy in the local parish church in Morpeth, a little town in Northumberland, not so little now, but it was then uh, where I grew up. And I was so I was singing the Psalms, I was hearing scripture read, um, I, I was singing some of the great hymns. Um, and nobody said to me, um, where are you with this? But one day I found myself, I just had this vivid memory, which I've talked about elsewhere, and I must've been about seven or eight at the time, uh, a vivid memory of some, for some reason, being by myself in a room at at home and suddenly being overwhelmed with a sense of God loving me so much that Jesus died for me. And I remember uh, weeping and weeping about this, which, which, and I remember it struck me at the time, why am I weeping? What, 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 What is this about? But it was that being overwhelmed with the love of God in the death of Jesus. And in a sense, that's never left me. Uh, of course, at various stages, particularly in my early teens and then through my teens when I used to go to Scripture Union camps, boys camps up in the Scottish Highlands, and we were climbing and sailing and canoeing and so on. And But morning and evening, there were talks based on the Bible, and uh, we were organized into groups of doing little Bible studies and so on. And I just went for it. It was meat and drink to me. And it wasn't entirely easy. My parents were a bit worried. I was getting too keen and too um, sort of focused on this rather zealous thing, and they, being very understated, were, were worried about that. Um, I think eventually they they were reconciled to it. And the, the, the main thing they worried about was then when I wanted to be an academic and go on and do a, yeah. a doctorate and, and be a perpetual student, as my father accused me of being <laughs> at one point. Um, and, and gradually, I think they got reconciled to that too when I started to write books and so on. So it all, it all began... Um, but it, it, in a sense, it was easy because so much of the family was involved in the work of the church. Either there were some clergy, some teachers, um, some uh, people who were lay leaders in local churches. So that, that was an easy world to be in. But obviously, a lot of people grew up in that world and rejected it all. For me, it
1: all just made sense and still does. Wonderful. Uh, Talk us about the journey then of faith. Obviously, academically, you went on and understanding the text. Um, What about the whole world of that living faith that you talked about, God tabernacling with us, Um, you know, the the role of the Holy Spirit, the supernatural in your life? What what has that been like?
2: Um, Yeah, I I worry about the word supernatural because, um, uh, as some of uh, the listeners may know, the word supernatural used to mean, many centuries ago, um, a a bit extra which would fill out the natural world. So, So it wasn't natural versus supernatural, it was natural and then we discover God in the natural and then we discover that God goes a bit further, as it were. But in the last two or three centuries, particularly since the 18th century Enlightenment, there's been the rise of a modern version of the ancient philosophy called Epicureanism, mm-hmm. which is if there are gods, they're a long way away and we're down here. And for many Christians, that's the framework they have. God and heaven are miles away, but then there is this thing called the supernatural where we're suddenly invaded and the natural world has to get out of the way for the supernatural to come in. And that's, that's simply not how the Bible sees it. And what we're talking about here, actually, and I'm saying this because then it'll contextualize what I want to say about my own faith experience, such as it is, it's to do with metaphysics. How do we understand how God and the world work together? And for so much of the last three centuries in the Western world, and the church has gone along with this, there's, it's been understood as a great gulf separating them. And some people have tried to get across that gulf by invoking Plato and the idea that I have an immortal soul which is really longing to go back to its true home in heaven. That's actually first century Platonism. You find it in Plutarch. It's not what the New Testament is about. <laughs> testament has this amazing picture culled from the old testament of the temple and the point of the temple as solomon says in his prayer in first kings 8 is that heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you nevertheless you have promised now to dwell with your people. And when we pray towards this house here in heaven, and when you hear forgive, that's biblical metaphysics. God is much greater than anything we can conceive, but he has promised to dwell with his people. And the temple promise is fulfilled in Jesus and then manifested and energized through the spirit. If we could only recapture that, there's so many bits of the Bible which would go click into place. For me, what has this meant? It's meant extraordinary guidance in ordinary and extraordinary times Um, in all sorts of ways. My wife and I are, are somewhat puzzled about this. We seem to get guidance mostly about when we're to move house or where we're to move to. We've had more extraordinary answers to unusual prayers in relation to moving from continent to continent or from house to house than about anything else. And sometimes it has been almost laughable. You know, a real estate agent phoning up and saying, "Um, Maggie, have you been praying or something? And Maggie's saying, well, actually, the women's prayer group that I belong to is just leaving out of the front door as we speak. Why, what's the news? Oh, well, they just accepted your offer even though it was far too long. <laughs> the stuff like that where you just think God has a sense of humour. Um, and that's not to say that we always pray and always get it right and always get the answers we want because we don't. But there have been extraordinary things. And Nehemiah has that phrase about the good hand of our God being upon me. And though we struggle with stuff and though sometimes it is very difficult and frustrating and, and so on, there have been many, many times and senses when the good hand of God has, in fact, been upon us to rescue us from some possible disasters, to guide us and to, to enable me, insofar as I have been able to, um, actually to be what I always wanted to be from an early age, which is somebody who would take this wonderful old book we call the New
1: Testament and, and bring it to life again for people in today's world. Oh, wonderful. Before we talk about Christian leadership, I, I want to ask you one question. So uh, for all the preachers, teachers, pastors, Christian leaders out there, disciples of Jesus, when we read the New Testament, there's some there's passages that puzzle us and we scratch our head and go, I wonder what Professor Wright thinks about this. I need to get the answer. So I, I Google Professor Wright and the verse or return to your books and commentaries. But there must be some things that puzzle you. So, if, if if I were the Apostle Paul today, and you could if you could ask Paul one question, what what would what are the things that you go? I don't I don't quite get that in the New Testament. Give us well, hope.
2: What I would really love to know, some of your listeners will know that I wrote a biography of Paul three or four years ago, and uh, uh, that was an exciting thing to do to see the thing whole and get the feel of it all. But th- right at the end. The book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome talking about the kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus openly and unhindered. And I I want to know the next chapter, what happened when he got in front of Nero? And did he go to Spain? Did he go back to the east, even though he'd said he wouldn't? Mm -hmm. um, You know, God can change his plans or change Paul's mind about his plans, that's fine. But did he go back? And if so, those letters, as we call the pastoral letters, particularly First Timothy, mm-hmm. did he write those during a subsequent journey or what? I would really like to know about that. Um, granted all that, then there are, of course, many exegetical issues which are still puzzling. For me, one of the most puzzling is the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul is talking about whether we wear headgear in church worship or not, and women's headgear, and it's a very strange sequence of thought and many people have thought that perhaps some of what Paul says there he is quoting from something the Corinthians had said in order to answer it which he clearly does earlier in the letter in chapter 6 and 8 for instance uh, you know we all have knowledge and Paul says yeah but knowledge puffs you up and it's love that builds you up that's First Corinthians 8 is there something like that in First Corinthians 11? And whether there is or not, how do we appropriate that for today? I'd love to know what Paul would say about that. Yeah, yeah. That's probably enough for the moment. There might be other bits in other bits of the New Testament, I have to say, but that's where I'd start
1: with Okay, Paul. well, well. one day, wherever heaven is, and when it comes to us <laughs> and all of that, I'll sit in and listen in with you in and creation. Paul. <laughs> okay, let's talk about Christian uh, leadership. Um, what about the place of theological education for the next generation of Christian leaders? How important is that? What should it look like? Should we all take ourselves off to a seminary or should we stay in our local church? What's what's the Jesus way in the 21st century?
2: Yeah, I have come and gone on the question of residential training versus training on the job, as it were, Um, and and there's a great deal to be said for both. Um, And I think a lot depends on what stage in somebody's life the vocational moment happens to them. um, Because when somebody is young, if they are able to take on board the great tradition to read Augustine and Athanasius, to read uh, Aquinas or Calvin or or whoever, fine but that'll take time Mm. you can't really do that properly if you're trying to um bring up a a teenage family and and do a job and be going to night school as well you just don't have the time to read the big texts and without reading the big texts however good your lecturers are you're never going to have that sense Mm. of total immersion in the great tradition but Whoever you are at whatever stage, and I have, when I was Bishop, I ordained people in their early twenties, I ordained people in their middle sixties and everything in between but of course the Bible has to be central. I was speaking at St. Mary's Seminary in Baltimore, which is a big Roman Catholic seminary in Baltimore, a few years ago, doing some lectures for them, and there was a big gathering of, of clergy, mostly Catholic clergy and seminarians, and somebody asked this question, what are the priorities in our, our formation and education? And I said, it's it's very, very basic. You have to learn to read the Bible until it's coming out of your ears. You have to learn to and particularly to pray for people until your knees are getting sore, and you have to learn how to love people with the love that God showers mm-hmm. upon us. And the seminary principle burst out as I said that said, this is exactly what I've been telling them. And I said, <laughs> good, go for it, do it. And it's very basic. But the trouble is, it's easier to take it for granted and to think that you've got to add some sociology or psychology or some modern history. Well, that's wonderful. If you've got the time for it but without the firm solid detailed grounding in scripture and without the discipline of prayer because you're going to need to, if you're going to be a christian leader you've got to pray every day for these dear people whom god is giving you and hold up their particular needs and puzzles and problems so that when then there's a phone call out of the blue from somebody in real trouble it isn't oh my goodness i wish i'd been praying for this person recently it's this is okay i prayed for this person just yesterday or the day before this conversation is already held within prayer. And then just as, as I said before, the trouble with the idea of us finding our way to God is that God sits at the top of the pile rather impassively waiting for us to find our way there. Whereas the God of the Bible is out on the street getting his hands dirty and and pierced indeed with the pain of the world. And if we're to be Christian leaders indwelt by his spirit, that's the sort of people we need to be. Of course, that varies according to temperament and and style and so on. But the so it's 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 Bible, prayer, and love is is quite a good basic kit. Everything else gets festooned around that.
1: Yeah. So speaking again of this next generation of Christian leaders, uh, what would be your biggest encouragement when you look at that, uh, or and what would be your biggest fear of what's coming through the next wave of Christian leaders?
2: Yes. It's difficult because there are very, very different movements out there, and I hear about some, and I run into others, and I meet people who say, oh, in my church we do this and that, and uh, I, I, when I was Bishop of Durham, I was very much involved, of course, with with training clergy and with ordaining them and, and supervising them through their early days in parish life, etc., I left Durham, when was that, um, 11 years ago, and I've immersed myself back in the world of New Testament scholarship since then, so I haven't been so hands-on with things, so I'm not completely au fait. However, because I'm now working as an extra, as it were, at a seminary, Wycliffe Hall, um, where one of my own sons is actually training for ministry, I do see sometimes first-hand and sometimes second-hand what's going on. So that's a long preamble to say. Um, I I am thrilled at the energy and uh, liveliness of so many of the younger people who are coming forward and offering themselves for ordination, people who have abilities and gifts where if they were to walk out into the secular street again, as some of them have already done, they could be earning 10 times what they'll ever earn as a church leader, certainly in the UK, but they are called and giving themselves to this and bringing energy and vitality to it. That's always exciting. But at the same time, because the whole mood at the moment is very postmodern, very much do your own thing, very free floating, et cetera. I think there's a danger of people just going off in a rather uncoordinated and undisciplined fashion, pursuing fads and, and so on. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a world where if you were a Christian, you jolly well went to church on Sunday probably two or three times, and that's what you did, and you jolly well did this and that and the other as well. And I see even some of the most zealous young Christians and young Christian leaders I know sitting very loose to that sense of regular daily and weekly discipline. Mm-hmm. I worry about that because when the times are getting tough, and we all face tough, tough times, but it's going to get tougher, I think, in the in the years to come, please God, it won't be too bad, but who knows, then it's that rock of discipline which we're going to have to fall back on, not because we're being legalistic, but because it's, it, you need the thing that will carry you through from day to day and week to week. I had a colleague in Durham who told me that he had kept in touch with um, or a lot of the students from his year in seminary many years before, maybe 30 years before, and the ones who are still keeping going in active ministry were the ones who were faithful whatever it cost in daily prayer and bible reading and and this man was not from a particularly evangelical tradition at all but he just had observed that that's what it was and the ones who'd thought that they could uh, skip a day or a week and it didn't really matter had often then wandered away and gone off and done something else instead so it's again. It's very basic, very obvious. But I think we need to reaffirm the basics at a time when so many things are being thrown in the
1: air. Great. Um, I, I ask you this question: uh, not, not that you're a critic, you're a champion of the local church. You really are. But what are church leaders, in your estimation, uh, missing right now that they should be paying attention to?
2: Wow! Wow! It, I, it's very difficult because we're all <clears throat> we're all different. And, and one of the things I've learned in my old age is, is that the, the radical difference between different personality types. I mean, most of your listeners will, I suspect, know about things like the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs, and they're not everything that's wonderful, but they help us to realize that Some other people are very different from us, and God probably wants to work with the grain of that difference and not make them all carbon copies of of me or of you or whoever. Um, And so uh, as I look at local church leaders, I see some and I think, I could never begin to do that and it would never have occurred to me to do it. But actually, now that I see what you're doing, I will thank God for it. And and similarly, I can't imagine why you're not doing A and B and C, but then if I live with that for a while, maybe there's a reason for that, and maybe God will make that up. So I, I don't come with a big fixed thing, but... I do think, and I've explored this in various churches, I do think we could make, you'd expect me to say this, we can make more of the Bible than we do. Mm. So many Christians only meet the Bible in public worship with a short paragraph for a first reading, and maybe, if you're lucky, because you're not always, a short paragraph for a second reading, and then you get a great long sermon which may or may not relate to those readings. And as I've said in various places, we should be doing that the other way round. We should a- arrange... Uh, quasi-worship services in which we read three or four or five chapters with maybe a little program note, like you'd get for a symphony concert. You know, you're going to hear Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. So there's a couple of paragraphs about what we're listening for, and then... (gasps) We have the symphony. The sermon could just as easily be the two paragraphs about what to listen for as we listen to Philippians being read from start to finish, or as we listen to Romans 5 to 8, or whatever it might be. And then get some of the best readers in your church. And most churches will have some good readers who can then practice and get it right instead of just being told at the last minute, stand up and mumble something. And and let the congregation. Uh, experience what the first Christians had, which, you know, they, they didn't just have Romans 5, 1 to 11 read one Sunday and Romans 5, 12 to 21 the next. The, the, the church in Rome got the whole letter the first time and probably the next day and probably the next day and the next week as well. Most Christians today have never experienced whole Bible public reading or whole book public reading. So that that's, that's a great aim and aspiration. And you can do... Um, Clever things with that. Uh, A congregation in Durham, when I was there, decided at one Lent that they would turn the liturgy inside out so that they would read, it was the Gospel of Luke that year, they would read several chapters of the Gospel of Luke and have the hymns and the prayers and the Eucharist itself within a reading of, say, Luke 1 to 5, or Luke 7 to 11, or whatever it was, rather than the other way around. So this isn't saying this is what everyone must do. It's a way of saying, let's lighten up with our usual practices and recognize that actually scripture is much more vibrant and many-sided than we've normally imagined. And then let's give that experience to the team that leads the prayers or whatever, and say, how can we organize our prayers this Sunday so that the things we want to pray for are nested within and then growing out of that experience of listening to Luke 1-5. I'm just using that as an yeah. example. Um, so I, I would love to see people Um, taking courage in their hands, and I'm a very traditional person when it comes to Anglican liturgy, but there is plenty of room within the framework for all kinds of freedoms, and obviously in the newer free churches, which I suspect most of your folk uh, belong to, um, then why not prayerfully think of ways of getting people to live within the narrative? Because If we do that, we're on the right track. And if we do this business of just taking little bits of Scripture, the danger is we will fit them into a narrative that we have made, which may not actually mesh with the narrative of Scripture itself there.
1: Wow. That's a tremendous answer let's get back to the bible let's read the bible let's live the bible let's talk about the the church for a moment and we're going to have a bit of fun with this question uh what would you critique or change about modern worship music
0: yeah
2: yeah 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 when I was a teenager I played the guitar um often several hours, hours a day um that gradually tailed off through my 20s and 30s. I still pick it up from time to time. But so uh, in the 60s, in the 1960s, this was very sort of daring and avant-garde to bring a guitar into church. And so now, of course, if people are strumming guitars in church, they tend to be people my age, sort of washed up elderly rockers, still trying to pretend they're with it, whereas in fact the culture has moved on in other directions. Um, but I'm I'm I've got nothing against people using contemporary worship, contemporary music styles, contemporary um, theatrical styles. Why not bring it all into church? Enjoy, celebrate. It's God's world. It's God's creation. However, one of the things I've noticed over the last 20 or 30 years is that a lot of the modern worship songs, particularly are deconstructed both musically and theologically that is to say the older hymns maybe some people find them boring now but i I don't but that's where i come from they had a tune and a tune takes you somewhere it takes you on a journey it reaches a climax and then it brings you back where you started and then you do it again for verse two a lot of the modern worship songs don't actually have anything really in relation to a tune. And I know this goes with a lot of contemporary pop music or the the pop music of the last 20, 30 years, Oasis or U2 or whoever it is. And that's not my field, but I recognize it, which is uh, an exploration of sort of rhythm and so on, but without the tune. Now, without a tune, you're not actually intuiting a narrative. And the Bible is about living within the narrative. So be careful lest we simply collude with Derrida or others in deconstruction in the way we do our tunes or lack thereof. I'm not saying we should never do that. I'm saying be careful where you're going with that. And in terms of the words, a lot of the worship songs that I have listened and some of which I've enjoyed and some of which I've been very puzzled by seem to me to be taking little fragments of Christian doctrine and devotion and, as it were, hurling them at a canvas and seeing them stick on there, and then we have another little bit and another little bit, and then somehow we sing it all and it seems to make some sort of sense. But as soon as you step outside a context where people sort of know what the Bible teaches and what Christian theology is all about, this this collage of, of vaguely Christian language and ideas ceases to mean what it should. And again, it's about the narrative. So I'm worried about the deconstruction that's gone on. And that's at quite a deep level and people don't realize they're doing it. But um, obviously, there are some people who are uh, doing great work in the contemporary sphere. The other thing I really do worry about is this is the first generation in the history of the church that doesn't regularly sing the Psalms. That is extraordinary. Mm. The Psalms are the biblical prayer book. They were Jesus' prayer book. Um, You can't understand the New Testament unless you know the Psalms. And, And I grew up singing the Psalms because... All churches, in my experience, did use the psalms in one way or another, and there's many different styles of psalm singing. But to have uh, a generation of Christians growing up in these lively, bouncy churches who never sing the psalms and who give us the reason for that, that, oh, well, they're quite difficult and there's a lot of bits we don't really understand. Well, excuse me, come on, you've got a teaching ministry. Go and study the psalms and teach your congregation what they meant, what they meant in the life of Jesus, and what they mean now that we as Jesus followers are singing them to his glory. We've got to get back there. Happily, a lot of contemporary Christians have seen that point, but I fear that there's quite a lot for whom that is still a closed book. So th- that's that's the beginning of my comments about contemporary worship styles.
1: Well, I, I will make sure and uh, uh, get all our worship leaders to watch this interview and take some notes, <laughs> and we'll be singing the Psalms from next week, okay? Um, let's turn our mind to something that really has impacted the church. Actually, it's impacted our world, and that is... I'm sitting here in the United States, and obviously the last year there's been the pandemic, but there's also been the the the, the trauma of the whole journey of of race and justice and so much tension. And, um, and just for a moment to introduce this this idea, March you wrote to the Spectator newspaper, um, countering Douglas Murray's assertion that the Church of England had embraced the new religion of anti-racism and you went on to say and I quote you here in this beautiful letter you sent the truth which neither he nor the church seems to have realized is that the anti-racist agenda is a secular attempt to plug a long-standing gap in western Christianity. The answer is to recover the full message, not to bolt on new ideologies. And so what what do you think is the role and the message of the church in confronting racism?
2: Yeah, <clears throat> it's a great question. Um, it, it's a worrying thing, and I started to worry about it before the whole business about George Floyd and so on came up though obviously that has filled the, <clears throat> the airwaves over the last year and, and more and uh, just a plug for the uh, uh, work by my former student Esau McCauley you may have seen Esau's book Esau now teaches at Wheaton College but he did his doctorate with me in St Andrews and he is a wonderful African American who's an Episcopalian priest and uh, he's stay uh, teaching New Testament and he wrote a book called Reading While Black, which has come out quite recently and which is not shrill and it's not um, kind of angry or violent. It's just saying, hey, guys, this was actually how it was for me growing up as a black Christian boy in the South. This is my experience and that of my family. And here's how I'm handling it from a point of view of Um, hopefully a biblical Christian now. And what does it mean for me to read the Bible as a source of hope, a resource for hope today? And Esau now writes, interestingly, for the New York Times, he does op-ed pieces, which is great. But so I would recommend that strongly. And Esau obviously speaking from the front line, as it were, on that. But the thing that has struck me more and more, and As I think you know, I've got a commentary on Galatians, which I think by the time you air this interview, that commentary should be um, in in Amazon and in the shops and so on. And as I was working on Galatians, it, it came more and more powerfully to me that Paul... Has, has cut his teeth as a theological teacher in the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch is a total melting place where people, uh, Antioch is on the trade routes, north, south, east, west. And uh, there is no problem about color at that point. Um, the color issue is a modern issue. In the ancient Mediterranean world, there were people with skin pigmentation of all different kinds. And you might comment that somebody seemed to be more especially dark skinned than others, but it wasn't a topic of conversation particularly not a church dividing thing but there were other things that divided the church and Paul's theology of justification by faith is precisely that it is our faith in Jesus, the Messiah and Lord, crucified and risen, that identifies us. And any other identifying marks of our culture, our background, our parentage, whatever, are distractions and sometimes worse than that, because there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female. You are all one in Messiah Jesus. And if you're the Messiahs, then you belong to Abraham's family. That was dynamite in Paul's day. Mm-hmm. The idea of an entirely new sort of family and in that same letter to the spectator i refined a riff which i've done a few times in various lectures and and <clears throat> people may have seen it online but let me let me just read it to you i picked it up as you were speaking where i say this family this jesus family is called to be a worship-based spiritually renewed multi-ethnic gender blind in leadership polychrome mutually supportive outward facing, culturally creative, chastity celebrating, socially responsible, fictive kinship group. That is justification by faith, my friends. And you see it in Romans. As I said, we have allowed the back end of Romans to fall off the letter, but Romans 1 to 4 doesn't stand by itself. Romans 1 to 8, even Romans 9 to 11, don't stand by themselves. Part of the whole point is then to say, now, you in Rome are very nervous because there's these different house churches. Well, they're different from us because they don't observe the Sabbath. They're different from us because they don't observe the food laws or whatever it may be. Paul says, no, you have to learn to live with those differences so that you may with one heart and voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. And this is back to where we were half an hour or more ago um, in terms of this is the definition of the church. The people who in Jesus are... If, find that those other distinctives are irrelevant. Now, where did we go wrong? Here's one of the fascinating things. It seems to me that from the Reformation onwards, the Western churches insisted quite rightly on worshipping in our own languages. We didn't want to worship in Latin anymore. We wanted to worship in English or French or Polish or Portuguese. But then we started different churches with those different languages, and then they grew apart, and so now you have people who think our theology is correct. In fact, that's simply the theology they had in the Netherlands at a certain point, and it's gone on that way. Or oh no, that's the theology they had in Spain at a certain point, and that's gone on. Excuse me, we shouldn't be defined in this way. And then that got caught up with, and this is the really nasty bit, that got caught up with the rise of, again, it's the Epicurean philosophy, which says that there are different races, and the different races have evolved differently so that those people we will label as black well they're different from us and we label ourselves white not that we are white if i I mean this this is white this piece of paper if i looked like that you'd be worried that i was about to keel over and die we are not white we're pink or brown or mottled or whatever so this idea of black and white is itself a modern construct growing out of the social darwinism of the 18th and 19th centuries There was social Darwinism before Darwin, by the way. And the church should have seen it coming over the hill and said, no, in the name of Jesus, we are not going to play that game. According to Acts 17, God made from one, or one blood in some texts, all races of humans to dwell on the face of the earth. We are all in this together. That was revolutionary when Paul said it, it could be even more revolutionary if the church lived it today. And let me say this, we have then colluded. We've had black churches, white churches, Spanish churches, Chinese churches, whatever. Well, maybe that's been a necessary part of our development though I do worry about it. But as long as we are divided, the rest of the world looks at us and says, why should we care? and it does its own thing and allows the church to be a little bit of spiritual music in the background. My friends, it is time to put that right and actually for the church to be the the polychrome people of God now of course there are other issues which people sometimes bring into that to say oh well well and so we're to be tolerant are we and part of the trick is to learn the difference between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't make a difference that's what first Corinthians is all about but that's a whole other topic so I think I'll stop there
1: okay well that's absolutely fascinating inspiring a biblical answer uh, just one more question on the church again I'm sitting here in America America. We got a flood of megachurches. I'm originally from Europe. You're sitting there in Oxford and the church has of different size. How would you coach American megachurches? Uh, what to be careful of, but also what we, we could do better and be more faithful as we, we as we steward the call of God? What, what, what would be your observations?
2: Yes, yes, I don't have any first-hand experience of leadership in a mega church. I have preached at various so-called mega churches in America and one or two elsewhere. Um, and it, it's it's a fascinating and extraordinary experience for somebody whose average size of congregation when I was growing up would probably be 100-150 in the church where I my family and I worshipped. When I was bishop of Durham, uh, I had in my care about 250 parishes Um, and uh, the average congregation there was probably somewhere between 50 and 100. So the total diocese of Durham, spread over the ancient county of Durham, probably had as many worshippers as some of the huge megachurches have, but we were dispersed with different clergy leading in very different styles, and it was my job to try to hold it all together and give it some sense of coherence. So that's difficult when you're geographically separate, etc. So I, I understand a little bit about the dynamics of there and I have heard it said in megachurch so. that every christian ideally should belong to one small group Mm. where maybe around a dozen where they can get to know people very well and pray and pray for and be prayed for by that small group and also should belong to a slightly larger group say about 50 60 70 80 uh, where this is a a normal larger circle of family where people are looking out for each other and caring for each other but with without that intimacy of the the central 10 or 12 or whatever. And of course, it's very interesting that Jesus had um, 12 close associates, but also there were 70 whom he sent out on a subsequent mission. And it's as though those numbers are not accidental. Jesus probably knew perfectly well that people need to belong to groups of those sizes. So not to get lost in the crowd of the 5,000 or the 10,000 of course if everyone comes together and there are five or 10,000 well hallelujah Uh, and I I wish we did have some more like that in the UK of course it brings problems as well one of the problems is about leadership and uh, uh, the leadership styles and the huge danger to which we are all subject or suspect no doubt um, of uh, the, the, the pastor who gets above himself or herself and thinks that they're God's gift to the world and we We've seen in recent generations some fairly disastrous moments with people who um, have been built up like that, and then it turns out that they really do have feet of clay. And to anyone who's anywhere near that level of responsibility, I would say, please, every year without fail, do a detailed study of Second Corinthians, because that's where Paul had crashed down to earth. In 2 Corinthians 1, he says, I felt so crushed that I despaired of life Mm. itself. And we see him constructing for the Corinthians who wanted him to be a great hero figure, a great mighty leader. He constructs a vision of apostleship, of church leadership, Based on the cross of Jesus, that is the only way to go. And so in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, and I've said this in various contexts, it's not new, but um, Paul is addressing the Corinthians who want to say it's time to make apostleship great again. And Paul says, let me tell you what great apostleship looks like. It it means being shipwrecked, being beaten up, wow. being uh, being accused, being threatened, being low." only being hungry and cold, et cetera, et cetera, and, and all, all of that. And then, yes, I've had some extraordinary spiritual experiences, but the thing which matters most is that I had this thorn in the flesh, and however much I prayed, Jesus wouldn't take it away because he said, my grace is sufficient for you. We all as pastors and leaders need that lesson, that we we will have thorns in the flesh, and we have to come back again and again and hear Jesus say, my grace is sufficient for you. So Second Corinthians is the way to go if you're in that kind of leadership Uh, and, and don't dare slide around it and think it doesn't apply to you.
1: Professor Wright, I don't know if you have a microphone there, but you could drop it right now because that was a phenomenal <laughs> answer. Phenomenal answer. Here, I could sit here all day and talk to you, but you're a busy man, okay? But I just <laughs> want to ask this for everybody, all our viewers here how can they access all your online Bible courses, you know, and, and just basically oh. get more into the world of oh. um, NT Wright?
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, yes, uh, I have a colleague who runs the Wisconsin Center for Christian Studies, David Seamuth, and he and I, over the last five or six years, have put together several courses, and we're recording more. In fact, God willing, there's one that I'm going to be recording on the Gospel of Mark in the next few days, and they are at www.ntwriteonline.org, ntwriteonline, all one word, dot org, O-R-G. And there's long courses and short courses. There's one on Romans, which is actually three courses because it's so massive. Um, and, and so on. And you'd find that easily on on that website. I do also have a personal website which somebody kind runs for me, which is um, uh, I can't even remember. Oh the NTWrite page, that's yeah. right, Um So people could look at that and there's there's a bunch of stuff there. but the the online courses, Um, this was extraordinary, actually, because I'd never heard of these things. But then I was doing some lectures in in Yale some years ago, and it turned out that the professor that I was dialoguing with, um, Yale put a a microphone in his class and made his lectures available online to a worldwide audience as kind of Yale's gift to the world. And people started to say, why don't we do that sort of thing? (laughs) And so David and I concocted this scheme. And we now have amazingly... Um, students from, I think, over 190 countries. Uh, how does that happen? I'm I'm a dinosaur. I simply don't understand. I simply sit in front of the camera and talk, and the courses come out in in bite-sized chunks of about 16 or 17 minutes each, and then a pause, and then the next bit. Um, but it seems to work at the moment. So if people can get into that, that's
1: great. Uh, Professor Wright, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on this um, uh just, it is, this conversation has been incredible. Would you, could I do one thing before we finish? Can I pray for you? Sure. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for Professor Wright. And Lord, thank you, even Lord, for those very precious memories as a child of how you revealed yourself to him and the simplicity of faith and the knowledge of your presence and also the revelation of the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for his sacrifices over the years, Lord, of staying in an office, Lord, being true to the gift of God and being a teacher within the church, being a bishop and serving a local community, being a pastor and a shepherd of the flock. But Lord, thank you for his faithfulness to the word of God. In a day and age, Lord, where so many people, Lord, drift, he has remained, Lord, true and kept his true north, Lord. He has remained true to your word and he has consistently preach the word. We just pray, God, heaven's best upon him. And Lord, as he spoke earlier, Lord, of Nehemiah, Lord, we just pray that he would sense the God's hand upon him, your hand of favor, and you would continue to give him success, Lord, for him and his wife. And Lord, as they emerge from lockdown, Lord, may these days, Lord, feel so sweet, Lord, and so blessed. Take care of him, his children, and his grandchildren. We pray this
0: in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks again to N.T. Wright for joining us. Wow, uh, my brain hurts in a good way. That was uh, powerful. That was helpful in so many ways, and uh, we're we're thankful for his voice. Thankful for the things he's written. Again, if you uh, go, just go to Amazon and uh, put in N.T. Wright and see what you come up with. But you can find him uh, find him in a number of ways online, and the, the easiest is probably just go to N.T. Wright online that's uh, one of his sites as well as the as, as pagecom uh, but ntwriteonline.org you can find him there he's got some great courses some free courses that are available for you to be able to uh, dive deeper and i know he would love that as he uh, he loves to uh, to help leaders to help church leaders and pastors and christians all around the world to uh, to get better and to be more Effective at both understanding their faith as well as uh, understanding the New Testament. So, thanks again. This has been a fun episode. Uh, If you would share it, please share this with your friends. Please share this with other folks. We want people to hear about this episode. We want them to subscribe to the Ray Johnson Leadership Podcast. Uh, That would help us out a lot. Go ahead and leave a review as well. If you like this episode, leave a review on wherever you listen to your podcast. And uh, we want you to keep leading well. We want you to be healthy and keep thriving. So, that's our goal. Until the next time, until the next episode, let's lead well, friends. This is the Ray Johnston Leadership Podcast.